Hi, this is a podcast of the best bits of Breakfasters for the week ending July 23. Breakfasters is a Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Coming up on this podcast, you will hear us uh, having a little bit of chat about why you probably shouldn't hire scooters while you're on holidays. And Fee Wright comes in uh, with a book review of Real Estate by Deborah Levy. We also have a chat with Andrew Dodd to chat about the book Upheaval, Disrupted Lives in Journalism. And then I chat about a horrible story where I forgot, um, I forgot, I forget words at critical times. (laughs) (laughs) Dr. Steve Allen from Radiotherapy joined us with some mental health tips during lockdown. We talked about the possibility of rapid testing to save live music in our media segment. And for Game Changers, Adam Christou introduced us to a painting adventure called Chicory. Uh, a big shout out and thank you to Vermont and Jace who filled in for me on a couple of days. So you might hear me missing in bits and pieces along the way. Triple R. Over the weekend, I was looking up uh, holiday destinations for uh, my honeymoon that's going to be coming up next year. I mean, what else do you do in lockdown? Look up holidays that may or may not happen. <laughs> um, but I was looking through friends' uh, social media posts and, and friends of ours were in the Gold Coast recently um, and it reminded me of a holiday where I was in the Gold Coast maybe uh, 15 years ago, I think, something like that. Um, and at the time we got scooters. I'm not sure if you guys, you the type of people to hire scooters when you go on holiday. Not, or... not coordinated enough, but um, yeah. if I had confidence in my in anything I do physically, then yeah. I would. I yeah. love the idea of it. I see people on them and I'm jealous. I yeah. was in the Gold Coast and I saw these four bro dudes <laughs> going past me uh, recently and they're all like high-fiving and <laughs> we're doing wheelies and I'm like, you're the worst, but you're right? the best. Yeah. And uh, when I landed there, I was in, so I must have been in my early 20s, uh, and I was there with a couple of mates and two of us went out. We're like, yeah, we're going to hire some scooters. And we got the scooters and then we didn't go on the main road because oh my god it was so busy so we just went like on the road closest to where the beach is and I just I'm, I'm not great with um and I didn't realize this until it happened of course uh on a scooter or a motorbike I just get confused <laughs> with the brake and the accelerator um on the handlebars so we were going oh I reckon 20 kilometers an hour not very fast at all and then we kind of slowed down and we were going around an, an island like a traffic island and we kind of stopped and then I went to go and I went straight over the top of the island and I flipped over the handlebars. I was At this point, I was standing still and then I accelerated straight into this island, <laughs> went straight over the top of the handlebars. I broke the mirror off the scooter and my friend has just heard this massive smash behind her. She stopped. She's like, oh, my God. And, and we moved the bike to the side. <laughs> and it was so traumatic. Thankfully, like, I wasn't going very fast or anything. Uh, we had to call. She's like, we have to go back. I'm like, well, I can't get back on the bike now. I'm terrified. Oh. Like, I, I was just so scared. And so I was sitting on the side and I was, <laughs> she had to laugh at one point because the mirror that had broken off the um, scooter, I was sitting down and looking at myself in the mirror, just trying to fix my oh. hair. <laughs> And she's like, because it was literally, we only just left the place. It was like a couple of kilometres away. She's like, it's not very far. Do you you want to just go? I'm just like, I can't. So they had to tow us. (laughs) Oh, no. Back with a scooter. Oh, Oh, like, like how long had it been since you'd driven confidently out of the scooter place? Well, 
oh not look, five minutes oh my god yeah no it, it, yeah it wasn't it was you just see this tow truck coming back oh they're just like can you I'm like mm. anyway so so they took that away um i have been well, i've been to india and I haven't ridden, oh, my God, terrifying. I would never ride a, a scooter or motorbike in India. But I have been on the back of one in crazy traffic. I don't mind being on the back of them <gasps> if someone else is driving, even though it's insane. Like, you will fit five people. You will fit a family onto a motorbike in India. Mm. And just so casually, you'll see uh, some of the kids sitting on the back just playing on their phones, just playing a game. Like, it is nothing, weaving <sighs> in and out of traffic. Um, but, yeah, as as far as driving bikes or scooters uh, can't do it ever since then it surprises me of you because you just strike me as a very coordinated person <laughs> with sports i would say yes but um and i reckon i can drive a car fine um but yeah motorbikes not on motorbikes i don't know it's, just yeah it's funny like my um brother writes motorbikes my eldest brother and he's so good that when he went for his car license he had to he he became a mechanic quite young and so he needed to get his car licence to move cars around the block. He had to get his, you know, his L's or something so yeah. he was allowed to move cars around the block or his P's. I don't know how it worked in the 80s. Mm. But he failed the test the first time because he was so confident because yeah. he is a mechanic that he'd get it. That he actually failed it. I don't know what he did wrong but something <laughs> stupid. But the guy that gave the test said to him, oh, did you, I gave you your motorbike licence a year ago or whatever it was or six months ago and he goes, you're the best You've done, you, you did the best in a motorbike licence test that I've ever given someone. He's like, why are you getting your car licence? And he explained, oh, just to move cars around the block or whatever at, uh, you know, for my boss, yeah, the mechanic. And, and he goes, oh, it's all right, I'll let you go. It <gasps> passed him because he was such a good motorbike rider. <laughs> I know. And then so I kind of always assumed that this talent would flow into my veins, but it doesn't. When I was <laughs> 10 at Gunbuyer Park, I went on the four-wheel motorbike that you, oh, could yeah. do. you could do laps at Gunbuyer Park bikes. on those quad bikes. Quad bikes, yeah. And everyone was like, this is the safest thing you can do at Gunbuyer Park, safer than the thing that you scoot down the loo. Toboggan? The toboggan. <laughs> I'm winning at this game of charades. Yeah, yeah, I'm so sorry. You can tell where my brain's at at the moment, can't you? Sarah has no words. And so I went on this quad bike and I got to the first turn on this quad bike. Slowly, Sarah, everyone zooted past me and I was just going at like... And I got to the first turn. I just went straight into the fence. Oh, and the quad bike yeah, flipped. quad bike flipped twice. All I remember is seeing the guy that ran the quad bike thing running towards me. Oh, my Lord. And he got to me and goes, never, ever, ever. He had no sympathy. He was a young guy. He goes, never in the history of Gunbuyer Park has someone flopped, flipped this quad bike. Right? So that's that's it. That's it. So once you've had that shame put on you Did as a you ten year old, twice. Yeah, flip twice. Oh my god! I'd never know a quad bike. Like they're so safe that they let ten year olds on them. Yeah, just to like zoom around a little circle. So I went to go and buy a park wow. once, and the uh, the toboggan was closed. Oh, I'm sorry. They shouldn't <laughs> even open gun by a park. Yeah, that is gun closed. No, it's not. It's that's just a. Uh, a field of kangaroo shit when it's just not... Well, and the quad bikes. And the quad bikes. And the quad Sarah. Bikes. <laughs> Lying on the floor wondering why she... Flipping twice on a quad bike and <laughs> shamed by a teenager. I did go on a holiday. I saw... Um, I was walking around Uluru and, you know, in really having a moment and then you hear... Uh, and there's... Sarah on a quad bike. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It was... <laughs> it was like 15 people on segways. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Oh. And there was something so incongruous about it. I mean, if you've got mobility issues, fine. But if you don't, get off the Segway. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I don't even know. Are Segways illegal now? Would you do a Segway? You know, when I was in Rome recently, I saw people on Segways still doing Segway tours. And I just thought they were 10 years. I didn't think people did Segway tours anymore. Like, no, it's still a thing. Would you do a Segway tour of a major city? I don't know. I yeah, I haven't. I haven't been. Have you actually been on a Segway? No, no, I haven't been I on have. one. Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm so surprised by that, Daniel. Well, only because it was uh, there was. Uh, I was in Paris for a long time, and there were lots of. Uh, two, I mean, it wasn't. Yeah, they're obsessed. Paris, Rome. We go to all the major, yeah. the major cities in the world. There's Segway tours everywhere. That's right. right. Uh, but there are, you know, you could there are bike tours. Yeah. And then Segway for people who I maybe the novelty. Yeah. As well, but also if you can't walk very far or... Yeah, like I can see I that. I get that. I, I, I but I don't know why that. a young person who's fit and healthy would necessarily... Would do a Segway tour. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, you know, I've done... On holidays, all bets are off. Jet skis. Jet skis, yeah, yeah. You know, nothing that I would do in the comfort of my own municipality. No. But, yeah, I, I, God, I love it. Uh, but is... Bungee jumping? Sorry, no, I, I haven't done that. <laughs> I haven't. Have you? No, God, no. I reckon I'll pop both my knees. Really? Oh, is that the only reason why you wouldn't do it? Um, oh, I mean. And eyeballs. I've done, I've done yeah, everything. Um, I've done skydiving before, but I don't know that I would do that again. I think when I was younger, I would do anything. But because I've had a couple of knee operations, I'm a little bit worried about bungee jumping. Yeah. I yeah. didn't know that it hurt now. Well, that's out for me too. I mean, it might not. It probably doesn't. You don't want to find out though, do you? You don't want the, yeah, yeah. and then pop your knee. <laughs> No, I was always worried about my eyes popping out of my head doing bungee jumping. That's why I didn't do it. I never even thought about my knees. I don't even know if that's a thing. Yeah. But I feel I like maybe I read a horror story once about someone's eye dislodging. Goodness gracious. <laughs> Am I just making this? I hope so. I think you're <laughs> inside into my... Just also thinking about the kids being so relaxed on the back of the motorbike with the family of five oh, yeah. or whatever. Like, yeah. Little do they know that their mum, Sarah... <laughs> It's like Miss Flip. <laughs> Triple R. Fee Wright's here to tell us, but one of the multitude of new releases she compulsively consumes. Morning, Fee. <laughs> good morning, good morning. Hello, everyone. Um, so I'm here back again, lockdown number five. I'm mm. hopefully back with another book that everyone's brain can handle. Um, I wanted to talk about Deborah Levy's new book of essays uh, called Real Estate, which is out now via Penguin Random House. Uh, if you haven't heard of Deborah Levy before, you you might not be alone. She's a playwright and author, born in South Africa, lived mostly in the UK, and she's been producing work steadily for years, mostly plays and, and fiction. But she's never really crossed over into, like, really big-name author status. At one point in this book that I'm going to be talking about, she jokes about crashing a literary event and pretending to be Eleanor Ferranti to get in. So she's not like a a huge, huge name. She's not like recognisable and she's very self-deprecating. And I really wanted to talk about this book because her name was mentioned about 17 times um, at the online Yarra Valley Writers Festival over the weekend by many, many authors. And I realised something, that Deborah Levy is the author version of the band Sparks. Remember those sponsorship announcements about the Sparks movie on Triple R a little while ago and they're all like, your favourite band's favourite band. Mm. Well, Deborah Levy is your favourite author's 
favourite author. All right. So Helen Garner spoke about wanting to read this book and um, while reading at the writers, uh, while speaking at the festival. So you know it's legit. Mm. So this is the third book of autobiographical essays and um, real estate, it relates to the theme of life. So all of them relate to some sort of theme. So a couple of years back, there was one called The Cost of Living, um, which was excellent. I've read that. And another called Things I Don't Want to Know, which I haven't read, and now real estate. Um, And when I picked it up, I thought it would be about literal real estate, which it sort of is, but it's mostly sort of a journal of Levy's thoughts as her youngest child moves out of home for uni and she's pondering life and turning 60. And what is real estate and what is home? Is it property or is it just something you value? And she discusses her mental image of her dream home, but then she also discusses her work, her current home. And for about nine months, she goes and lives in Paris on this writers in residence thing. And the wonderful thing about this book is that you can dig into the themes and the metaphors and the little wonderings that Levy conducts. Or you can be like me, uh, a brain fried little individual who doesn't know which way is up right now and just wanted to read something to forget about lockdown and for the pleasure of reading. And that's sort of the real gift of this book, that none of it ostensibly matters. I read the first half of this. That sounds like a terrible way to talk about something, but it's true. <laughs> this. life's work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, um, I read the first half on Friday afternoon and evening, and I was just tired and I was burnt out, and I was not keeping track of the plot at all, but it didn't matter. And when I say that the pleasure of reading, I mean that it wasn't like a gripping thriller and I couldn't put it down. I meant that the words put in this order were very nice to read one after the other and it made me feel comforted and warm and cosy. I didn't care about what happened earlier in the book. I didn't care where it was going. Just that the the words would just flow together and distract me and I wouldn't be thinking about another lockdown. Mm. So the prose was just wonderful. She is wry and funny sincere and also grumpy, which is nice as well. I, I, I feel like we underestimate how comforting someone being grumpy in a book can be. Mm-hmm. Um, most of it is divided up, not so much into chapters, but where she happens to be living whilst writing that particular section. A lot of, this, of these, um, so it's like cities. And then a lot of these city chapters are also broken up with like large paragraph gr- breaks. And each one signifies a new thought. It will link up vaguely with the previous one but it just flows together so effortlessly it's also the perfect book to buy and read now because I 100% know that I did not absorb everything I could out of this and it will have such wonderful rereading potential um so you can just like dip back in in the future and um I spoke about this a bit last year um when I would read about people living in different places Sometimes I would hate them and sometimes I wouldn't. Um, and I also didn't hate her for living in Paris um, and visiting New York and Germany during this book. Um, so she's clearly some kind of wizard because I didn't begrudge her that. You know, she also pops over to Greece and lives on like this Greece, this Greek island for a while and I'm, I didn't hate her at all. Like, it's... Oh, I do. <laughs> Maybe I should read it. <laughs> yeah, it was just – it was just um, – it was just the warmth I needed this week in so particular. if we're talking sort of if it's essayistic, are the, is it dogmatic in any way or is it more ponderous? Does it Definitely add? ponderous. Okay. And that kind of ponderousness means that because it's pondering, you don't have to keep a, a level head and deep focus. 
and you can just kind of drift along with it. It's like just taking down the river, which is really a lovely sensation. And what about uh, the idea of reading words that flow? For someone who only reads good writing, that doesn't sound like much, I suppose, but there's a lot of bad writing out there, isn't there? Well, I, I, I actually think I was trying to, I was talking about this with another friend who loves Levy and I was saying that I actually struggle to think of another writer where I do enjoy that. It was almost, you know, poets spend so much time on such a few, like just short um, pieces of work or every word is chosen um, to to flow together beautifully Mm. to create that image. It was like a book of that, but you weren't actually reading poetry. It was just, it was like reading silk. Yeah. God, I sound like a douche. No, no you don't was, no, That's why we get you here, Fee. <laughs> <laughs> Bring on the douchiness. Um, no, it was – I actually can't think of another author where I literally just read it because it was just so enjoyable to read the words as they were, which mm. – I don't know. It's it's almost like um, it, just, it just flowed so beautifully – um, I didn't mind that I couldn't re- necessarily recall the start of the book. And I don't think Levy would mind either. I feel like she's just happy to be sharing and whatever you take away from her work will make her happy. But also if you take away nothing, she probably doesn't care either because, you know, she's spent some time living on a Greek island. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right. It's the third um, in a series. You don't have to have read the first two. Did he, can you read them in any order, do you reckon? You, I reckon you could read them in any order. So the first one is the one that I haven't read and I don't feel that it has impacted my experience of this at all. I read The Cost of Living last year, a year before, I think. Um, it might have been actually at um, Elizabeth's, the other book reviewers and um, Elizabeth McCarthy's suggestion to mm. read it. Um, so Elizabeth never steers you wrong. If Elizabeth no. likes an author, you know it's going to be good. Yeah. Um, so I haven't actually read them in any order. Um, you know, I've read them completely out of order. But they've just been um, just all of them, just really pleasurable to read. And um, I also read her novel Hot Milk this year, which um, which came out I think in 2016. And that's, a, again, another wonderful, wonderful book. But this one in particular, Real Estate, just gave – you know, I still had to focus on the plot and hot milk. So I wouldn't necessarily recommend that for a lockdown. But for real estate, you just want to read, but you just want to take the pressure off your brain. Mm. But you can get whatever you want from it. If you do want depth, she discusses the ideas of of um, being 60 and change of life and and divorce. And it's very expansive in that sense. You know, there's all of these big themes of ideas that are being covered. But then also... You know, she's just at the same time she's talking about pomegranate trees and rivers and rowing boats and riding. And so you can dig as much as you want into her work, which is, I don't know, I, I can't think of another author that, that elicits that feeling. Do you have me. a theory as to why if she's your favourite author's favourite author, why she's not your favourite author? Not, not you in particular, but The what's, reader. Yeah, the reader. Oh, I don't know. That's such a good question. Um, maybe it's because of that. You can drift in and out and because her, because her prose flows so well. Mm. Um, maybe it's, it's linking into that prose. I, I just seeing Helen Garner kind of 
um, muse on, oh, what would it be like to read Deborah Levy's journals and be like really inquisitive about that yeah. um, was just really interesting to me because it was it spoke on two levels there, one being that she likes Deborah Levy's work, but then the other that she's also like deeply inquisitive to see what Deborah Levy's writing would be like when no one else is watching. Right. Goodness, so, how exciting. And so yeah. it's, it's how old is this book? A couple of months. Couple so of months. I think it came out May, June. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, about yeah May. So um, pretty pretty new in the scheme of things. That's right, and it's Fee Wright's Lockdown Read. Yes, yes. Uh, support your local bookshop bookshops, folks. So yep. um, I picked it up from one of my locals. So highly recommend um, click and collect or order online, all those things, and give those community businesses a bit of a bit of a hand. Absolutely. Uh, Real Estate by Deborah Levy and the publisher. Uh, Penguin Random House. Excellent. Thanks, Faye. Thanks, Thanks Faye. Thanks, guys. Melbourne's own Triple R. Andrew Dodd is Director of the Centre for Advancing Journalism and an Associate Professor of Journalism at the University of Melbourne. A former broadcaster at Radio National, Andrew presented several programs, launched the Media Report and worked as a journalist for the 7.30 Report and the Australian newspaper where he covered media. He's co-editor of a new book, Upheaval, Disrupted Lives in Journalism. And to tell us about it, the author joins us now. Andrew, welcome to Breakfasters. Thank you very much. I should add to that list of sins that I was a newsreader on Breakfasters in the 1980s. Oh, get out go. of town. <laughs> so this is, a, yeah, this is a return to the fold. So thank you for having me on. <laughs> wow. You'll have to give me some tips after this. <laughs> um, you note that uh, in the decade to the end of 2020, an estimated four to 5,000 journalism jobs simply disappeared along with mastheads, outlets and production houses. How have you attempted to document this upheaval? Well, in about 2012, when there was that mass sacking out of Fairfax, when 1,900 people went in one go, we decided then that this was a phenomenon that we really needed to keep track of. And Laurie Zion at La Trobe University pulled together a team, including the co-editor of this book, Matthew Rickardson, and we started researching it. And we very quickly reached out to people who were going through these sackings to ask them about the experience. And this book is the tip of the iceberg. There's, you know, so you've interviewed all these people and there's transcripts available elsewhere as well? Yeah, that's right. We've, We've interviewed 60 people, 57 of whom are in this book. And those uh, interviews are about to be included in the National Library database. And they're very long interviews. They all go for about seven or eight hours. And they talk about their lives and their lives in journalism. And the ones we've got in the book really represent a wide range of experiences. But the common thing that all of them went through was redundancy, either voluntary or forced. And so if if this book captures the sort of change from the mass media of journalism and, you know, the rivers of gold to, to what it is now. Can you what can you highlight some of the reasons of the decline and whether there is any hope? Yeah, well, the, the reasons are reasonably well known, aren't they? The, you know, the digital revolution came along, new media started taking advertising, the classifieds disappeared from the old mastheads, the money ran dry, the rivers of gold dried up. So we kind of know that. Uh, What we didn't know so much about was the human impact, and that's what this book tries to uh, get to grips with. And and the question of whether there's any hope is one of the questions we ask those people. And we found a mixture of pessimism 
on the on the one part. You know, on the one hand, where people were really uh, sad to see the industry that they knew and loved be reduced in the way it was. But there's also a lot of positivity and a lot of recognition that young people are coming into newly formed newsrooms that aren't quite what they were, but nevertheless are trying to do public accountability journalism. I mean... I suppose if a lot of people said when this was going on, every industry has had to go through this. Everything shifts and changes. Time moves on. But I suppose an industry like journalism at its core is so important. Like what the outcome of what journalists produce is so important to public life. That's what many people would argue, that this industry going through such a change has this huge impact on society, this kind of flow-on effect. Do you, is, are you able to link the, I guess, these redundancies and this kind of upheaval to the way things have shifted in uh, the way the public values, say, truth-telling in journalism and this suspicion of journalism? Are these two things linked or are they totally separate matters? Uh, that's a really good question. I think in one sense they are coincidental. You know, there has been the rise of social media... Uh, has brought forward all these new ways where people can publish and misinformation and disinformation is rife. And at the same time, well, I suppose they're not coincidental, isn't there? There is almost a causality between them. And, and, you know, because the same forces have also worked to reduce newsrooms. So there is a link. And the fact that there aren't journalists in those traditional newsrooms to the same degree doing the public accountability journalism to keep everybody you know, on, on their toes does mean that there is a little less scrutiny than there once was. And particularly on things like court reporting or local government or state government reporting, those areas of journalism have really suffered in this upheaval. The public seems to value journalism. People share stories and, you know... Information matters. We have movies that win Oscars based on the work of journalists. Is it? What have we lost? Well, we've certainly lost that, you know, public accountability function. And and I think one of the things that we track in the book is that we've lost some of the character of newsrooms and the mentoring that used to happen inside those newsrooms. I mean. These were described by people in the book as being almost universities of life. They were full of the most bizarre and interesting characters. You'd have experts of, on horse racing sitting next to, you know, long-time career health reporters, sitting next to real estate experts, sitting next to business experts. And, you know, so you'd go into a newsroom and you'd have this collection of highly opinionated, often grumpy, highly stressed people, but doing amazing work um, keeping society and democracy animated by informing the citizenry. And we've lost quite a bit of that character, I think, and that's unfortunate. It's not to say that there aren't ways in which, you know, journalism is being done that are really valuable now. Of course there are, but we have lost a bit of that. I mean, you work with students, I suppose, and are aware of what it takes now to become a journalist. Is funnelling through journalism courses and that sort of gateway the best way to find the sort of mavericks and eccentrics and born storytellers? Uh, Really good question also. I I think where journalism is taught well, it's taught through doing. It's, you know, it's taught through the practice. In fact, that's really the only way to learn how to do it. It's a craft industry after all. So if it's taught well, you know, you really nurture people's individuality and you nurture the way in which they want to write about things. So, 
you know, I think if anything, what we're trying to do in journalism schools is uh, give people the key skills they need, but also harness the attributes they have so that they're ready for employment and then they can, they can take their characters into new kind of professional settings. So, you know, I think it's really difficult these days to break into journalism unless you've got that support, that kind of impetus behind you to do it. And that's what we try to do, I think. The book's full of bylines that I've recognised from, you know, my time reading newspapers. Where do people kick on to once their career is over? Yeah, look, a really wide range of things. Some have become uh, couriers, some have become uh, teachers, quite a few have gone into universities, some have done PhDs. There's a scary number of uh, ex-journos doing PhDs at the moment. There are all sorts of really interesting things, and people are um, reinventing themselves as kind of new media journalists, and they're doing some accountability reporting in, in new guises. I mean, Michael West is one of the people who's interviewed in the book, and he's done some amazing uh, investigative journalism work. Others have started uh, startups that have either thrived or not. A wide range of things. And uh, I think one of the things you learn from journos is that they have really transferable skills that they can take into other lines of work. 25, 50 years ago, you might not have predicted the landscape as it lays now for journalism. When you take together all of these stories and all of these accounts, do you what does what does journalism look like to you in fifty years time if you if you had to kind of, I don't know, look into a crystal ball? I think one of the things we took away from this is that we recognise that young people really are full of energy and enthusiasm about this industry and recognise its importance. And they're often leading the way in taking journalism into new places. And you know, it's, it's unfortunate that the business models haven't caught up with all that enthusiasm and entrepreneurship yet. But as soon as it does, this industry is going to be able to reinvent itself in a healthy way. And we're beginning to see that. You know, this news media bargaining code that's getting uh, um, Facebook and Google to cough up for the content that it runs on its platforms, those platforms, is bringing money back into the industry. The problem with that money is that not all of it is trickling down to journalism. As soon as we get these kind of levers right and the money is coming in, uh, there's nothing to... um, there's no reason to think that journalism can't thrive again. And so not to romanticise the past, what are some of the themes, yeah, I'm thinking sexual harassment and discrimination that maybe we've moved on from, but that was a, a feature of newsrooms or journalism in the day? Yeah, I think you've named two of them. And there was, there was often bullying going on in newsrooms. We've you know captured some of those stories of workplace culture that uh, really weren't very healthy. But there's also a kind of larrikinism in a good way. There's a camaraderie in a good way. There's this kind of spirit that we're, um, you know, all in this caper together and that we've got this stressful job and that we support each other through it as well. So they were characterful places. They were exciting places to work. And, and there was that sort of mixture of good and bad. So there's a bit to miss, but there's also a bit that we can be happy that we moved on from. Yeah. There's a full range of experiences in the book. It's called Upheaval, Disrupted Lives in Journalism, edited by Matthew Ricketson and the person we've been speaking to, Andrew Dodd, and it's out through the University of New South Wales Press. Andrew, thank you very much, and I hope I haven't let you down. (laughs) (laughs) Certainly haven't. Thank you so much. Cheers. 
Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. So yesterday was one month in the job here broadcasting with uh, with you guys, which is exciting. Thank you. The time for our review. <laughs> Brilliant. Here we go. We'll start with you. Um, and it, it made me think, uh, sitting in front of it, and I love it, it's absolutely brilliant, uh, sitting in front of a microphone, getting to chat with you guys all day, uh, all morning. Um, but I have had some, uh, in the past I've had like a nightmare occur where I was in front of a microphone and I had forgotten my, my words. I'm not sure you guys have been working here for a number of years, is that it probably happened to you guys? Mate, you work with us every morning. Is there a morning <laughs> when I don't forget <laughs> the name of a track or... Yep. Yes, absolutely. Oh, that's good. Yeah. So maybe that's why I'm enjoying it so much. I'm feeling comfortable. You're feeling comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> um, a, a few years ago, I was working at a, at a cricket match and it was at uh, Marvel Stadium. And I, I've been working in this role for a couple of years now. And it was just it was just like every other day that I'd worked. Um, but it was the innings break and we were having a, uh, you have presentations, you have activities happening in the middle of the ground and, and I'm hosting them and chatting to people. And like I said, I'd, I'd done it many times before, but this particular day, for some reason, <laughs> something happened to me. Now, there were about 30,000 people at this match, right? And generally, during a supporting match, at the innings break, that's when people go to the bathroom. That's when people leave. I, I don't believe that many people are actually watching what's happening on the big screen or anything like that. Um, of course, I don't. So, sorry, you're the ground announcer. Yeah, oh, so, yes, I'm the host. So I'm okay. the on-field host. So I'm, ah. I'm standing. Sorry, thank you for <laughs> clarifying that. Uh, yeah, so I'm on, on the ground and we had a couple of um, cricket teams uh, playing against each other uh, and it was my job to introduce CEO of one of our major sponsors and he was going to be presenting medals to uh, the winning team. Anyway, we get there and I uh, introduce him and I introduce the team and I say, and the CEO will be presenting each of the winning players with, uh, with a, uh, <laughs> and I couldn't for the life of me think of the word medals. Oh my God, right? it's not a name, you just the, forgot the, yeah. an, an inanimate object. Yes, right? But in my mind, I just, I was just like, oh no, you'll get this rather than moving on. I went, no, 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 you'll get this. So I stood there and I went, uh, we'll be presenting each of the players with a, um, each of the players will receive a. Uh, <laughs> oh, Bobby. <laughs> and I tell you, right. And normally, as I said, no one is listening. But all of a sudden, if you are seeing a car crash happening on the big screen, everyone is watching the big screen. Now, I've got my floor manager there, right, who's supposed to help me through this. Like, uh, they were standing behind uh, the camera and everyone around me has just frozen. Everyone's freaking out. And I, I don't know, something happened in my mind. And I just thought it was the funniest situation ever, which was, I guess, my reaction to to fight or flight. Oh, <laughs> right? my God. And my, my floor manager was looking at me and I go, uh, each player will receive A and they were looking at me like going, keep going, keep going. And I'm like, all, all you have to do is say medals. Like there's no microphone in front Line. of you. Yeah, just, exactly. just give it to me. But they were looking at me and they were stressing. Uh, there was a lady from Cricket Australia and she said to me afterwards because she was standing next to the floor manager to see what roles we had at the end innings break and she said uh I'm sorry Bobby I I freaked out I didn't know what to do I thought you were having a stroke up there (laughs) (laughs) and I said I like that they still did nothing I know literally watch this happen to her (laughs) 
and they were all just staring. Anyway, um, I, I started to look down because we had a young girl that was volunteering and she was holding the medals <laughs> and she was standing there and everyone was, like I said, freaking out. And she was standing there and she was dangling. She was kind of shaking a little bit because she was nervous. And I go, each player will get, and I pointed at them and oh. I'm looking at her and this young girl, she was about 15, and she looks up at me and she goes, medals. <laughs> And I go, medals! Each player's going to receive a medal. And I tell you what, 30,000 people at Marvel Stadium cheered like I've never heard them cheer before. It was it was exhilarating. It was also my last day working at that organisation. Was it really? <laughs> oh, I finished the season, but um, I, I continued to work for the women's team, but uh, they, they did get another. Oh. <laughs> it's such an important <laughs> lesson in terms of, and I, I reckon old oh. men in particular do this. You may have... Which you know, I think I am. Not, I'm not an old man, but it, we all have. Pr- See, I'm doing it right now. <laughs> See, when do you bail on your own screw up? Yes. Like yeah. It, yeah. you know, we were talking to. Uh, why have you infected me, Bobby? Oh my God! What's what is what this? Is this stroke contagious? <laughs> no. We were talking to Digger, and I wanted to say surgical. Right. But and I couldn't think of it, so I said medical. Right. Which was a passable, serviceable Close synonym. Close enough. Close yep. enough. And no one would have picked up on it. Or, or you can just go, no, no one's moving on until I find the right word. Yeah. Which is precisely what you did. Because oh. you could have, I presume, done like shiny prize that goes around your neck. Yeah, oh, well, I did, I did actually at, oh. at one stage go to describe, and I think it just got worse. <laughs> but at... She just scrubbed. <laughs> oh my god! A necklace a piece type of ribbon <laughs> with a necklace <laughs> with a shiny bit at the end. But at the end of it, I honestly, and then we finally got there, and I just thought it was a the funniest thing. A necklace. <laughs> I thought it was the funniest experience and just but no one around me no one could deal everyone like the floor manager couldn't look at me everyone was like just looking the other way I was like we got there like you know got a cheer um and then I went to my co-host who was Cameron Mooney I used to play for um Geelong um it was actually both our last year he he hated the job he sent me (laughs) um I saw him uh I met up with him just afterwards he's like oh Bobby god that was excruciating (laughs) and I just couldn't stop laughing he goes I'm glad you're laughing because I would be crying like yeah. Uh, anyway, we got through it though. Um, not the not the job, but <laughs> I mean, every morning this happens in some way. Every or every morning. You know, the first time it ever happened to me. And there's no way of replicating it. Was I was in year six, and we had a uh, speech competition every year. Like, what do you talk? Public speaking competition every year. God. <laughs> So we are just playing this o'clock. game. This is so sad. We're just, yeah. You're making well, me yeah, feel we're all a lot public speaking. We had a, I know. We had a public speaking competition every year and I'd left a, I was a good public speaker and I left a, <laughs> oh <my> <laughs> once upon a time. I'd left I writing the, 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 the speech to like the night before and then mum had said to me, you've got your speech ready. I was like, no. She came to me frantically in my room and I was scribbling things on a bit of paper and I was trying to record it onto a tape deck. And so I'd sat up all night listening back to it on this tape deck mm. and I got up to do my speech and it was a final, it was a semi-final and the speech was Australia, queen or country. That was the theme. And I have no idea what I was discussing, but something to right. do with, obviously, the Queen. And I got halfway through it and went completely blank, like halfway through a sentence and went completely blank. And I did this thing where I just pivoted from side to side, <laughs> smiling at everyone. <laughs> oh. 
like this. Just silent, smiling, pivoting, smiling, pivoting. And everyone was just looking at me like, what is she doing? And eventually I got to the, like I had little notes in my hand and I eventually yeah. got back on track, got to the end of the speech. And it, when they were judging at the end, I had this really intense teacher. She was really harsh. She goes to everyone, who reckons... Sarah stuffed up, <laughs> stuffed up her chances of getting through to the final when she forgot what she was saying. Oh my lord! Yeah, I know. And then like half the class put their hands up and was like, "Yeah, she stuffed it." What and the moment? other half? Oh yeah, man, the speech was intense. Oh. And she goes, "Well, she didn't. The speech was excellent." So Sarah, <gasps> oh, it's okay. You're through to the final. But yeah, that's the that was the first. Time she I'd pulled had... a master chef. Yeah. So that would have been disgustingly. Good. Oh, anyway, there you go. So let us all forget our words forever. Triple R. Dr. Steve Allen, a.k.a. Doolittle, is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Melbourne and director of psychosocial oncology at the Peter McCallum Cancer Centre. After a four-month sabbatical, he returned to radiotherapy last Sunday and in the midst of the state's fifth lockdown, joins us now for some much-needed mental health advice. Doolittle, welcome back to Breakfasters. G'day and good morning to you all. Good morning. Hello. Morning. Um, people are facing it tough in so many different ways. You know, people are f- financially ruined or you might be lonely, you might be overwhelmed with responsibilities. What have you observed about how this fifth lockdown stings in its unique way? You know, it keeps taking me by surprise because it's a real mix. There's some people out there who love lockdowns and they like the peace and quiet and it doesn't really affect their finances and they, you know, and they just like being away from the hustle and bustle. And I hear that a lot. But then I also am constantly surprised about the the horrible ways it affects various people. Like I've run into a lot of people whose, say, partners are separated from them for whatever reason. Um, and that's just some of them haven't seen their partners for you know whatever 18 months um you know i went to pick up some takeaway food the other day and i you know i was chatting to the guy who uh you know who i I always buy my indian from and he was just devastated saying to me you know saying steve you know this is you know families are being torn apart he was talking about him and all his business mates and you know what's happening so you never quite know but you know there's like pockets of misery in all sorts of different ways that you don't expect and of course what i see particularly in the hospital is people who are going through illness and not being surrounded by the normal supports that they'd have and being uncertain about when they can get help and all that sort of stuff. So, yeah, it's really it's really a, a, a challenge in so many ways. Mm. And it's, you know, we hear it's winding up, but the seven-day circuit break has sort of bled and bled and bled. Uh, what are some tips in this time of uncertainty to get through it? Well, you know, the first thing I've been saying to people, you know, throughout each, each of these is learn from what you've done in the past to begin with, you know, and the sorts of stuff, you know, because we've all gone through it mostly, I, I reckon by now, um, you know, so many people, it's their fifth one, obviously. And so, uh, you know, figure out what worked, what didn't. Now, the stuff that I hear all the time, probably the first one I hear, which is so obvious, and, you know, you'll know it because we say it to, you know, we say it to kids all the time, if something goes wrong, get back to school and it's routine. Do what you normally do. Build some routine into your lockdown. Figure out, um, you know, the key things you need to do. Time to relax, work, socialise, whatever it is. And even if it makes you feel good, write a timetable. The point being is that routine's like a tonic for anxiety. Mm. That's my first one. So, sorry, but with, with that, because a lot of people are like, oh, I can sleep whenever I want. Is that sort of a – would you try and avoid that if you can in, in terms of trying to cement or bed down a routine? Look, you know, it, it, it's all going to be individual, of course. 
and there's no one size fits all. But um, I, so I wouldn't necessarily avoid stuff. I'd just make sure I know my routine, you know, like, so if I'm, you know, whatever I'm doing at nine o'clock, I'm going to start doing my work. I'm going to work for a couple of hours till 11. Then I'm going to have a break and watch some TV. And then I'm going to, you know, maybe have my lunch. Then I might have a sleep after lunch. And it's about keeping to the same routine every day. Now, when it's only a week or two, it's not such a big deal. But of course, this was a super big issue when we were in the months and months of lockdown last mm. year. Uh, what else might we do? Well, and again, another one, and I feel bad saying this because I've said this 18,000 times in the last 18 months, but it's staying healthy. You know, staying healthy, again, is your number one protection against any mental health. The mind and the body intimately linked, stuck together. They're one and the same. So, you you know, you exercise, you eat well, you don't drink too much. You know, you get out of the house, you, you do whatever you can, online yoga, exercises, whatever, to stay healthy through the pandemic and uh, even though it's boring and it's obvious, it, it, it's like uh, it's like uh, health 101, mental health 101 too. Stay healthy. How do you kind of, okay, I've got friends who said that they're finding going for walks depressing now because it reminds them of walking for three months last year when that's <laughs> all they could do. Do you kind of have a solution for that? So when there's not super amounts of exercise available about how, how these things that you know you need to do and should make you feel better but maybe aren't making you feel better. How do you overcome that? Yeah. Yeah, I reckon there's a, there's a really important trick to overcome that, and that's to mix it up. So you try different exercises. Do something you haven't done. Jump up. There's a million online websites. So do yoga or something you haven't tried before, or even, you know, go back to, you know, um, what are they called? Aerobics classes online, all that <laughs> sort of stuff. Or if you really love walking, jump in the car, drive your 5Ks or whatever you're allowed to, walk in different areas. Um, you know, anything that's different. I've just set up an exercise bike in front of my TV, and even though that's as boring as all hell, you know, it's <laughs> something different than because I'm a bit the same I'm a little bit over walking too so I'm trying that so yeah you know mix it up is my trick there you know one of the fun things that um, a friend of mine does with Strava is that they when they walk they um, walk out letters and they have messages to their friends when they look at them on Strava so like it, it will map where you walk uh, and some of them will do like the initials of their name or, or just a word um, just to change it up I guess that entertains them Oh, yeah, Strava cool. art. Strava yeah, art. Yeah, that's it. That. Yeah. yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> um, you know, and on that topic of, you know, others too, as well as listening to what others do, another really good tip to feeling good is to help others. You know, people who work in my sort of industry and other sort of industry, helping industries have known this for years. You know, helping other people really makes you feel good. So during the pandemic, another thing you can do is just, you know, mentally go through your head of all your friends and families and figure out which ones might be struggling. Chuck out a text message, give them a call, um, you know, surprise them with a, an, a, you know, a delivery of some food or something. Um, that sort of stuff is another really good tip to get through quarantine. Just to put a pin in the tips for a second, because we'll mm. return to them. I'm thinking about the kids who maybe bef before lockdown would get to school early for a breakfast and now they're at home in an environment that's not really it's not great for a lot of kids at home right now let alone that you know the diligent parents trying to school kids at home what are we setting what's coming down the track here in your estimation for the effect on children in five ten or even longer years time when they look back at this two-year period of indecision and lockdown yeah it's going to be really it's going to be really interesting to see what comes out so my partner's got three kids they haven't gone to school for 18 months 18 months they've been at home they're not in australia and uh, um 
it's unbe- you know it's it, it's unfathomable. Um, the kids, in my impression, and from what I've seen, you know, obviously we always say kids um, cope surprisingly well, and that's what I've seen from a lot of kids so far. Um, you know, a lot of them coping well. A lot of the parents have you know let their hair down a little bit, let them play more online games, don't be um, so rigid about the normal rules. Um, you know, focus on the school again, routine, 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 and all that sort of stuff. But I guess the things we're going to worry about is they're socialising. They're going to be a couple of years behind in their socialising. I can't see that they're learning as much in online. No, no kids are getting the full amount. So I think there'll be some educational delays. Um, you know, I think our kids will grow up with some strengths from it too. They'll have grow, they'll grown up, they'll grow up knowing that these things can happen, and knowing that stuff that we talk about, like we talk about global warming, we've been talking about pandemics for twenty years in the medical industry. Um, this sort of stuff that everyone just sort of thinks, oh yeah, 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 it's just experts bullshitting on. They'll grow up with that sense that these things are real. So I think there'll be some strengths that can't come out of it. I suspect they'll get a bit of resilience out of it. So I think it's going to be swings and roundabouts as for you know what happens to our kids in the long run. But uh, it's something that we'll keep, obviously, a super close eye on, just like we're keeping close eye on our kids now and, you know, looking for signs that they might be struggling. Yeah, which bleeds into, I suppose, helping others. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And kids is one of the biggest things that people have been asking about. You know, I've had that questions about kids so much and there's and there's some great websites with tips for anyone who is worried out there, tips about how to home educate and, and how to uh, look for signs of worry. Start with the Children's Hospital. They've got a, a great website, Royal Children's, but um, there's heaps of others too. What else can we do? Well, you know, I, I hear people wondering a lot about how to use their time and what to do. And one of the things I've been saying a lot to people is, you know, use your time wisely if you can. Think through all the fantastic things that you can do, especially creative stuff. Most people have a list of things in their head that they've always wanted to do, like painting or writing or singing or dancing or, you know, even, you know, learning maths. But I always chuck in on the flip side, if you can't use time wisely, who gives a shit? Use it unwisely. <laughs> At the end of the day, it's a pandemic and our goal is to get to the end of it in one piece. So, you know, use it wisely, but if you can't unwise, use it unwisely. That's, I think that's important. It's funny. Have you seen people – look, the sourdough phase is over. So <laughs> what, are, what are people doing well, differently, this one, to the last one, do you think? Mm. Well, you know, I've been Trevor. I, I went on a sabbatical up north for four months, so I missed a bit of it all. Right, but That's um, nice. I think what, what they're doing different. What am I? I you know, I'm, I still heard some people making sourdough last week. Um, you know, getting back into it, I think people have really um, delved down into the depths of Netflix and the various other streaming mm. services. I tell you what, I just started. I just started West Wing, which I haven't watched for obviously I don't know 15 years, and uh, so I started at episode one. Um, you know, I think. You know, I think there's a whole lot of creative things and, you know, ways you can find to chill out and do stuff, but you just oh, have to dig around. I think people are just baking the sourdough and throwing it at the wall now. <laughs> <laughs> Get out. Yeah. That's my tip. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and what else should we do, do you suppose, to... Oh, look, you know, my final one, and I'm going to sound like, an, you know, an old man, a dad saying this, but I don't give a damn, um, <laughs> is perspective. You know, we've got to remind... You know, I've heard a lot of times... 
I think people sometimes lose perspective of what's going on. We've got to remind ourselves that lockdowns are inevitable during pandemics. You know, love them or hate them, they're inevitable. We're going to have more. It's not going to be the last one. Um, and compared to the West, rest of the world, we're doing incredibly well. Our hospitals are essentially empty. You know, we've got a few patients, COVID patients here and there, but essentially hardly any. Um, our lockdowns are getting briefer. Our vaccination rates, I love watching the number climb every day. I flick onto that now instead of the COVID numbers and watch it climb. And, uh, you know, we've got food, we've got income support, we've got shelter. Um, and, uh, you know, so in the overall scheme of things, we're doing incredibly well in Australia and Victoria especially compared to so many other places where they don't even have the luxury of getting out of lockdown because of the poverty and the um, way that uh, COVID's ravaging through their country. So, you know, I think even though I'm not saying, um, uh, of course, it's, it's OK to feel shitty, but I think it helps sometimes to take a bit of a reality check. Yeah. Now, Steve Allen, you have a new version of your book out? Oh, yeah, we've got, uh, you, you know, Catherine Devaney, Melbourne legend, um, comedian, writer, great mind of mine. We wrote a book called Mental Everything You Never Knew You Needed to Know About Mental Health. We chucked out a new edition just this month and it's got a chapter in COVID and we updated everything. Uh, yeah, check it out. It's, Brilliant. It's, it's fun. Okay, out through Black Ink. Uh, Dr. Steve Allen, thanks very much. Thanks for having me, guys. Cheers. You're <sighs> That's right. Triple R. Uh, a video came out yesterday of, uh, and I'm sure a lot of people saw it, of Australian Olympic Committee President John Coates uh, berating Queensland Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk during a meeting at the Olympics, uh, pretty much telling her that she had to attend a ceremony that she wasn't going to be um, attending. Um, it, he played it off as it was a joke. Uh, he was being jovial about it, uh, but there were mixed well, actually, there, were, there weren't too many mixed uh, opinions, I guess, online, not from what I saw anyway. Uh, me personally, I have worked in um, male-dominated sports for a number of years. I managed uh, women's football leagues, had to work with AFL uh, managers from different men's leagues, uh, and also working in cricket overseas with um, men's cricket associations. And when I watched the footage of him just tell her what she had to do, and, and she didn't really comment at all. She kind of stayed there silent and she Not said... Not from the footage. Uh, from the footage, yeah, she didn't say anything. But the footage I saw was cut up. Yeah, yeah right. that's true. Yeah. And yeah. I, oh, footage that's cut up is always tricky. But, yeah, yeah. it was seemed sort of gobsmacked. Yeah. Like a told-off child. Yeah, completely. And she said uh, I, she didn't want to say anything. She didn't want to offend anyone and just kind of let him go. But, oh, so many times I have been in a room full of men that manage men's competitions and just the way that he spoke to her, like it just happens so often to mm. a lot of women and I think that's what a lot of the outcry was from people that were watching it. It's like, yeah, this was on television, this was um, shown to you all, but this happens all the time <laughs> to women. Well, it was at a press conference, so I, he's yeah. almost trying to shame her. Into... Oh, completely. It's interesting, there's a piece by Greg Baum in the... Uh age today and it talks about John Coates as a person yeah. and it's pretty straight up takedown of, yeah. of his personality. Like it really just lays it out and I don't think that uh, Coates is someone who hides who he is and that's basically what the piece says. It goes, here's all the times that he has publicly said things or done things which seem really old school and old boys club really publicly and isn't doesn't hide it. I've just never yeah. noticed it before. I think it's the first time that I've seen, or maybe kind of times have changed a little bit, but it was probably yeah. because he was sitting next to a premier at a very important press conference and you kind of couldn't hide what he was saying and the way he was behaving in that moment. Yeah. He's been on the scene for so long. He's 30 years. Yeah. Yeah. Like that's incredible. And I suppose, uh, yeah, for a guy like this, I, I tend, I try not to get offended on behalf of people who say they're not offended, which, but this is 
special case, it feels like, <laughs> uh, because he said he's joking. It's obviously a hard, difficult behind a face mask. And Anastasia Palaszczuk says, get on with it. This is a great day. Yeah. yeah. But crikey, what a shocking display. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's so interesting that um, on the day that it happened, there was also, you'd have to call it a leak. I guess, given where where else would the story have come from? But Jacqueline Magnay, who's a writer for News Corp and appears on the ABC's Offsiders a lot, um, had a story about that. John Coates said that Anastasia Palaszczuk nearly blew it, nearly blew getting the Olympics, because three months ago made an announcement about a, increasing the size of the Gabba and the Commonwealth didn't know about it and then they crunched the numbers and it was like $125,000 per seat and they're like, what the hell are you doing? How We can't have this Barney before the um, the selection process because getting costs down is a part of getting it. Then apparently he had to convince the then Queensland Deputy Premier Jackie Trad, who was vehemently opposed to the 2032 Olympics. So it seems like the the context of this is John Coates feeling like, He's got to drag everyone along. Th- that's the impression that I got. And that's kind of what came through in those yeah. patronising comments as well. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's kind of spoiled what was a pretty exciting celebration. Yeah. It seems to be too, though, as well, a reflection of what the those functioning bodies are like. Yeah. Uh, Balm definitely kind of makes that implication, I suppose, that the IOC in of itself is an old boys club and this is the way old boys clubs behave. And so we just kind of had the the window open a little bit for us to see it. Yeah, uh, Totally independently, seen. though, why wouldn't you go to the opening ceremony if you were there? I don't know. It wasn't it political? She, she, she didn't want to get in trouble for being over there and to be seen to be having... Uh, you're already uh, there. Having fun. Not having right. fun, but you know what I mean? Like she's already left the country to go and have political things. I think it was yeah. because she had all of these meetings and didn't want to look like she was just yeah. faffing yeah. about. But, well, that's right. And that, that's the thing where, uh, you know, now that Brisbane has the Olympics, everybody's forgotten the controversy about her going. Well, that's the thing, right? So, yeah. And, 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 yeah, yeah. And, now, and also, this is more controversial... Uh, but with the because the Delta variant came from India, we halve the Indian intake from India. Now that the Delta variant has screwed Australia, I don't, it's less likely that you'd see a backlash against trying to contain the Delta variant. Does that make sense? Oh, I see. Like yeah. my point is that things were controversies are no longer controversies. I don't think that Alexander Palaszczuk, uh, Palaszczuk um going to the Olympics. I, didn't, I was never offended by it in the first place. Yeah. Uh, and now that Brisbane have got the bloody Olympics. People seem to not care yeah, about exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Anyway. Um, uh, I've got a quote to this quote from him, like to move on really quickly from it, but it's just funny. I think Barm was kind of illustrating um, what Coates is like and how he, he's he's not kind of – he'll make public comments – off the cuff all the time. Apparently when Great Britain uh, did really well at the 2008 Beijing Games, uh, in the swimming team specifically, he said at the time, not bad for a country that has no swimming pools and very little soap. It's like a line from... The office? The office, right? <laughs> yeah, you're like, is that really, does that really come out of your yeah. mouth? Yeah, so just yeah. kind of funny. And he's the right-hand man of the IOC president, Thomas Bach, in Australia, and just the whole... The dinners and the schmoozing and yeah. it's all so old school and gross. Yeah, it's so old school. Oy. Um, now, there was a station announcement earlier about Crew Keeper and Music Keeper, I think. Yeah, I heard. just heard that. Mm. Which is good. It's a great system to have in place and because everyone's... So go on, sorry. 
No, I was just going to say it is a good system, but it also just made me sad that that system has to exist. That's totally right. I would prefer... Uh, it. It's fantastic and uh, you wouldn't change it. But what would be interesting is if you used double that money or that money to subsidise rapid testing. Now, France is now making um, tourists into France pay for rapid tests. You get the result in minutes and then you can go in. Why can't – what if you use that money to subsidise rapid testing of punters – and we just get the live music scene going. You know, you show your ID, you do your rapid test, and you go in. Uh, you know, are the rapid tests perfect? Probably not, but neither are the vaccines, and nothing is perfect. And I reckon the state would wear it to, to get it going. I think this, to me, this makes so much sense. And can you imagine, like, the potential for events to take place and to have an immediate response to the desperation that the events and particularly the music industry are, are feeling right now. Yeah. Uh, the state's trying to pump money into and little grants into places and into businesses, but none of it's enough to sustain the industry, which is already at, at its kind of rock bottom at the moment. So I just think that that makes sense. Like, are rapid tests available en masse in Australia? Can they be made available? I don't know much well, about Well, that's them. the thing. Like, do we – can we make them? Yeah. Can we source them? It's obviously fine for France. The US are travelling and you to get on a plane, you're taking a rapid test. They're just there. They're it a part of sense. the world. If you could combine it with vaccination at the moment, it would just make so much sense. It would be fun. It would be – I'll do it seven days a week to see live music. <laughs> yeah, uh, totally. Like, venue, I, I think everyone right now would happily have a rapid test if it meant they could go to a show yeah, yeah. or comfortably sit in a theatre. Do you think, like devil's advocate here, but if someone um, was – positive for COVID in that line to that live event, would that make a difference, like as an exposure oh, site? Well, or you get, that's a good point. You get tested, you know, like if within 24 hours, if you show a negative test, no problem. Yeah, right. I mean, I can get texted around the corner from my house. So if you have a rapid test available, rapid test spots available, and you just show your phone as you go into a, as you go into a gig oh, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, yeah gotcha. Like, there's my ID and here's the corresponding yeah. test result. Like, let's get it moving. Yeah. Especially because it was interesting to see that pub owner find 22 grand. Oh, in a chuka, was it? Yeah. What happened? So he just opened. He said, this is killing us. <laughs> and he opened his doors during the fifth lockdown. Pastoral Achuka hotel owner Trevor Andrews opened on the weekend um, in defiance of the lockdown. And there were, there were punters in there. And you could see he showed the security footage and you saw like 20 cops filter in. Whoa. It was quite threatening and uh, it was ominous. And he broke the law and that's what you would expect. You know, you kill one, scare a thousand, so it goes the same. Yeah. But it felt to me like the resistance is growing. It's interesting. I've spoken to uh, a few people who uh, have events and run venues in Melbourne and They've said similar things, like if there are a way for them. Well, they got to the point – I've known people who got to the point where they just had zero cash flow, so they couldn't pay staff, they couldn't pay bills, they couldn't pay the rent, which was doubled from last year. And they were saying our only option at this point uh, – and also the state government payment of whatever it was, it was so small anyway, seven grand or whatever from the first snap lockdown hadn't come through three weeks in. They said their only option at this point was to open and um, – 
and and to try and either make money to cop a fine and to try, just to get the cash in in that point. Like that's conversations I've had. Sense. Yeah, like yeah. I've had that conversation with a few people, and then they didn't obviously because things are so staunch here in Melbourne at the moment, and they didn't go through that decision. But they said it was getting to the point of desperation where they said they don't know how else to function without fall, falling over without yeah and, and that's that I mean if it's that desperate where yeah. you're going yeah. I don't want to do this but I don't know what else to do like we have no other option can you give us an option and the idea of being able to do fl- like those flash quick tests like I don't know how long they take but minutes uh, that's amazing but they exist let's yeah. do it if oh. we can or and, and if, if we can't tell us why not and yeah, then yeah, if yeah. we can't, tell us why not and fix it. Move on to a new idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Find, find a solution for that. Because this is not a solution to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, and like you said, if they're doing it to get on flights in the US, like it's just that's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's, so it's 29 euros in the, in the – that's what they charge in France to get this test for tourists, and so, well, subsidi- I would much rather that be subsidised as everything else is being subsidised. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, but also, just finally on this morrow. <laughs> <laughs> Goddamn morrow. For the morrow, it's been apparently in New Zealand for ages. It was yes, before Mars bar. Before Mars wow. bars. Now I feel bad, and it, it kind of sounds like a New Zealand word, Morrow, doesn't it? Yeah. Now I think about <laughs> it. Maybe Mars ripped off Morrow. Maybe we've got it backwards all along. Oh, wow. Oh, Morrow's the original Mars. I take it back, Morrow. Yeah. I'm going to buy one after the show. <laughs> Triple R. Adam Christo has stepped AFK to talk games on Breakfasters. Morning, Adam. Good morning. Can you explain that reference? Away from keyboard. Oh, very yeah, good. Yeah, it takes me back to the, I don't know, Thank you. two months ago when I was playing World of Warcraft. <laughs> <laughs> I still use that term all the time. I'm old, everyone. <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, video games, hey? Um, once again, we're all trapped in our houses, so perfect time yep. to pick up a game and play it. Um, you know, I was just saying off air before we went live that I broke my toe last week, which is an even better excuse to just sit around the house and play mm. video games because I can't really walk everywhere. Um, was it on the so, bed? Was it? A, sorry, was it a post of a bed? Was it a cabinet? Was it a table? So we have a hallway and there's like a corner on the hallway that Way to brag about having slightly. a hallway. <laughs> yeah, I know, riveting. Some people don't. <laughs> and, and I just jammed it into the, the corner of the hallway, which juts out into the living room. Yeah. And just Oof. like, yeah, it was good toe injury time. You don't get a lot of sympathy for a stub toe, but we're here for you. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. I, I feel I feel, I feel, feel it. Um, I have been playing a game. Uh, what a shock. <laughs> Uh, I've been playing a game called Chicory, A Colourful Tale, which uh, came out uh, kind of early June. It's out now on PlayStation 4, PlayStation 5, and PC. I'm playing it on computer. Um, and it's by Finji Game Studio and independent, an independent developer, Greg Lobanov, and a small team of four other de- developers that worked with him to kind of put it together. So really tiny indie game uh, put together by a small group of people. Um and I think I'm going to go out there and say that for now, it could be my favorite game of the year. Cool. And I don't put that on things lightly. So I feel like this is the one that I kind of want to tell everyone to go play 
and and really experience at least once before the end of the year. Um, and so you might be like, what is this game? Why am I throwing so much lush praise on it? I've, essentially, it's a painting adventure. Um, so it is like a top-down kind of two-dimensional kind of exploration game. Think like really early Legend of Zelda games from the 90s and 80s, um, where you take on the role of a very cute dog in a world of anthropomorphic animals, and everyone is named after food. Um, and you come into the possession of a magical paintbrush that allows you to paint and color the world around you. Um, the game actually opens up with a really simple question, which is, what is your favorite food? And I just sat there for like 10 minutes agonizing, not sure what I should write. And I was like, do I pick like a really cool food? Do I pick something basic? I ended up going with chocolate because I was like, that's that's pretty basic and that'll do. I don't want to think too hard about it. But that's how the game actually gets you to name your character, which I think is really kind of adorable and sweet so that you fit into the rest of the world of, of everyone being named after food. Um and it immediately sets up the stakes of this world. So your character, in my case, Chocolate, um, is the number one fan of the wielder of the magic brush in this world, who is a rabbit named Chicory. Um, you work in Chicory's art studio as the cleaner, and the game opens up with you basically scrubbing Chicory's art studio and cleaning up all the dust from it, which kind of introduces you to one of the big game mechanics, which is that on computer, you use the mouse like you would say an MS Paint to kind of like delete and clean things and and kind of paint on the world. Um, and so while you're kind of brushing and cleaning this art studio, something happens in the world. There's a great shock and suddenly all the color is gone. And you kind of stumble out of the art studio and realize that chicory has gone missing and the magic paintbrush is lying on the ground. And so it's kind of up to you to pick up the paintbrush and go on a quest to save the world and also restore color to everything as well. So the kind of very first thing that you can do in this game once you pick up the paintbrush is start coloring and everything. And that's kind of when this game also turns into a bit of a coloring book. And I, I think a lot about like, does anyone remember the adult coloring book phase of a couple years ago where everyone was just buying buying coloring books? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's 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 got that sort of energy about it. It's like every single space that you walk into this game is black and white. And you can spend as much time as you want coloring it in. You don't have to color it in, but I feel compelled every time I walk into a space to just like spend 15, 20 minutes touching it up and making it pretty. Um, so that's been really enjoyable for me in terms of like a headspace thing mm. while playing this thing in lockdown. Um, but you also use uh, paint and color to kind of manipulate the world around you and get through puzzles as well, which is really exciting too. So Early on, you discover that if you paint certain plants, they'll grow or they'll shrink if you wipe color off them. So you can kind of learn to kind of uh, get past bushes and shrubs that might be blocking your way by painting them or removing the color from them. And that kind of lets you get through a whole bunch of really simple puzzles in this world. Uh, later on, you end up fighting bosses using your paintbrush and having to color them in while dodging their attacks. Um, you get a whole bunch of really cool powers related to your paintbrush, including the ability to paint glow-in-the-dark paint, which lets you explore dark caves and environments that you can't see normally. Um, and I don't really want to spoil all of the paintbrush powers because I think a lot of the fun of this game is kind of uncovering and discovering what comes next every time you unlock a new power for your paintbrush. Mm -hmm. um, but I think the other big uh, twin element of this game outside of the really relaxing painting and exploring the world and kind of kind of solving puzzles is the really great writing in this game. 
this game is just oozing with really wonderful personality and just all of the characters in it have so much heart and so much depth and warmth to them. Um, you know, you might only have a short conversation with a character that you stumble on into a town or outside a cave. Um, but even through a handful of lines, they feel fully fleshed out and with so much depth as well. And it's, it's an interesting story too, because your main character, um, is one that is full of endless optimism, but feels like they have no idea what they're doing. Ultimate imposter syndrome. They've picked up this magical brush and suddenly they're the brand new wielder of the magic brush, whether or not they want to be. Um, and they're kind of shit at art because I'm shit at art. I can't paint really well. I paint horrible things. Um, but everyone around them kind of pushes them on and encourages encourages them and as you bump into other people that were former wielders of the brush that live in this world that have kind of retired from their life of art and keeping up maintenance on all the colors of the world around them they kind of just turn to you and go we were all making it up as we were going we have no idea what we're doing um and it's a really sweet sort of um i guess through line in this game which seems to be about uh i guess mental health depression anxiety imposter syndrome um you kind of bump into Chicory a little bit later in the game and realize that she threw the paintbrush away because she was depressed at the time. And so a lot of this game is about exploring your relationship with Chicory as well as you kind of build up a kind of artist-mentor relationship with them and they come back into the picture of the story. I don't want to spoil too much about this game's story, but it is really well-written and, and very beautiful as well um, and takes you into some really cool places in terms of like, um, art galleries in these quaint little towns where you can kind of sit and do an art lesson where everyone is in awe of you because you're the master of the paintbrush <laughs> but some of the students who have been painting that for like years for just one chance to hold this paintbrush kind of look at you and like you're a bit shit <laughs> it's really well written um, there's some cool challenges in this game where like a picture will kind of flash up on the screen and they'll be like, paint this. <laughs> and you have to kind of try and paint it as best oh. as you can. Always ends up looking like dog crap when I do it. Um, but it's very entertaining. Well, you you say that, way. but you've sent through an animated GIF of what looks to be a cat holding a watering can. Is that you? Um, yeah, that, I, I drew that. So that was one of those challenges where a really beautiful picture of a cat holding a watering can is is given to you. And it's like, repaint this masterpiece. I made that trash. So oh, I like it. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah, it's good. Um, yeah, that's the other thing is this game lets you create animated GIFs of everything you paint, every screen that you walk into, every masterpiece that you have to paint. It lets you kind of save a GIF and send it to your friends, which is kind of cool. Oh it has a co-op painting mode as well. So if you've got a friend as well that wants to join in, uh, maybe sit on the couch with you on PlayStation and pick up a controller, you can both start painting the world and get into fights as you kind of <laughs> try to figure out the best way to paint an area. Um I just think this game is really special. It's it's kind of hard to to really quantify, but it's got this sort of lightning strikes kind of element to it where everything just works. Um, the soundtrack is by Lena Rain, who is a games developer soundtrack maker, who is kind of really well known for her work on a game called Celeste from a few years ago, which ended up... She ended up popping up on a whole bunch of really good music blogs for end of game for like end of album year lists, which is not a thing that happens with game music very often. Mm. So the game has really beautiful meditative instrumental music that kind of follows along with it that just fits the thematics and the emotions of what it wants to tell at any time. So it's kind of one of those weird games where everything comes together, all the sums of its parts fit together perfectly and it's 
I really want more people to play it. I think it's something really special. Right. Do you reckon this soundtrack will come out too? Or... Oh, it's on Bandcamp if anyone wants to hunt it down and check it out, uh, the Chicory soundtrack. Um, but, yeah, it fits in best in the context of the game. It creates yeah. a lot of moody, kind of ambient and emotional kind of spaces for you to explore and get lost in for 20 minutes where you try to paint the trees oh, the way you want to. Dead set. Chicory, a colourful tale on PS5, PS4 and PC. And the... Uh, uh, studio again? Uh, so it's Finji Game Studio and independent developer Greg Lobanov. All right. Chicory, Adam Christo, thanks very much. No worries. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast of the best bits of the Breakfasters, which is the Monday to Friday breakfast show broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia. Feel free to get in touch with Breakfasters via Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or via the Triple R website.